0: Amen. Well, good morning. morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. So much love and thanks as well to Brady and Diana for arriving early every Lord's Day, laboring to serve the body in the ministry of music. We thank you for that. So many give so much to this body out of love and generosity. You know, chances are, if you drive by any time during the week, Likely, you will see a car or two sitting in the parking lot. And those are people that are here serving the body. They're cleaning, painting, organizing, counseling, decorating children's rooms, mowing the grass, doing the books. The list goes on and on. We are so grateful for those who so faithfully give of their time and resources week after week. They see a need and they fill it, beloved. That's true body life. And within body life, beloved, God's design for the church, for the body of Christ, is that there be no lack for the work that he has commissioned and that he has called to be accomplished. God's intent for his people is there to be meat in the storehouse, that the sheep might be fed and that the great commission might be fulfilled. Still, as we observe our churches today, we see that lack is far more common than prosperity, don't we? And why is that if God's desire and God's will is that there not be lack in his church? Well, it's the same reason that God is not willing that any should perish, Scripture says. Yet we know that most will. God's will is that there be provision in his house for the work to be done. And that comes with a command and a source. It means it comes with a means and a method. Now, you've heard the saying, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. Catchy, and that is true. It is God's bill. But that's only half the story. That's only half the story. And God has decreed how the bill will be paid. What will the mechanism be for doing so? Well, grab a mirror. That's God's plan to pay the bill. For his will. And throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles, as they teach the new churches, the apostles instruct these believers that God has ordained you to be the vessels of giving and provision for my work on the earth. As I prosper you in your work, you prosper my work. In other words, Christians are blessed to be a blessing. Now, God could cause gold to rain from heaven if He wanted to. I think if you're a certain stripe of charismatic he does that for you but that is not in the wisdom and plan of the Godhead. God says, "Here's my plan to make sure there's no need in my house. I'm not going to rain gold on people, on you. People are my plan. They are my vessel for giving. They are going to give into your hands. Just like people are my plan to propagate the gospel. The gospel, people are my plan." to fund the operation of my church. But there's quite a catch to that. People don't always obey, do they? We know that God has a perfect will, doesn't he? For example, his perfect will is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But we know that most in the world will not obey that. His perfect will is that we should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control their own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. Again, sadly, that is not always the case. Still, we watch as Paul is exhorting and encouraging all Christians, not only that giving is an imperative, that it is a command, but we're even instructed how and the manner in which we are to do so. Paul tells the church at Corinth, breaking it down in 2 Corinthians 9-7, he begins that each one must give. Well, great, that settles one portion of it. Who is supposed to give, doesn't it? Each one must give. Okay, well, how much, Paul? How much? As he has decided in his heart. So giving is a matter that we ponder, that we consider, that we pray about. It's going to look different for different people. Some, people, some God has prospered more than others. But just as you pondered what you would wear to church this morning, we are to seek the Lord's face in determining not if we will give, but how much. But oh, Paul doesn't stop, doesn't stop there, does he? Yes, he starts out giving the command, each one must give. Then instructs us that this is a matter of seeking the Lord in, that an inner conviction should exist, giving you clarity and giving you guidance. But it's not just the what. It's not just the command to give or the command to seek God in that pursuit, but Paul tells us how. How? As always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And Paul goes right for that. How do we give Paul? What's the heart of the matter? last part of verse 7, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul just threw all legalism out the door. Giving to the Lord's work is not a slog, it's a joy. It is actually part of our worship. And Paul goes straight for the heart when he talks about money. Why? Because the moment we talk about money, we are touching on nearly every heart issue someone can have. Every single one. Our heart, the seed of our will and desire, comes gushing out when it comes to money doesn't it? Meaning, show me your checkbook registry and I'll show you your will. Look at your credit card bill, your true love will be on display. Our bank statement is a tapestry of the state of our heart. It shows what matters to you, where your priorities are, or as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. that's a major reason that God allows us, that he makes us the main vessel for funding his commission. It's not because he needs your money. He doesn't. It's all his anyway. Newsflash. He doesn't need us at all. He allows and he commands us to give because it's for our benefit. The command to give not only provides us a tangible way to worship, but it shines a light on our heart. It exposes our idols. It's a tool of sanctification. God does not need our money. He allows us to give for our growth and our benefit. The giving of God's people is God's will declared in Scripture to serve the needs of the body and to fulfill the Great Commission, to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed to you Sunday after Sunday. But saints, I have to tell you, we have a five-alarm fire of giving in the American church. It's often said in church life that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. Heard that? Well, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that it's the same 10% usually who do 90% of the giving as well. We have data on giving that goes back a long time. You know, agencies and ministries have tracked these trends for years. And to give you some context, the average American family during the Great Depression, gave approximately 3.3% of their income. That was a time of desperate poverty, bread lines, not two nickels to rub together, 3.3% of someone's income in the Protestant church during the Great Depression. Today, 2.5% is the national average, almost a full percent less than the Great Depression. And sadly, that's not the worst news. (laughs) That doesn't mean that every attending family, every member or non-member individual is giving 2.5% today. Hang on to your hats. Today, two-thirds of all Protestant church members or regular attenders give little to nothing. And the other one-third that do give 2.5% on average. That works out to about $17 a week on average in the United States, for only one-third of all church attenders, and nearly zero for two-thirds of all church attenders. Beloved, we're not whipping churchgoers here. That is a failure of the pulpits in America. As a result, reliable data shows that 12 churches per day in America close their doors. 4,500 churches per year close their doors. There is not meat in his house. Each year or two, we have a message titled, The State of Theology, and we preach that concurrent with the release of that study by that name from Ligonier. And of course, it's a stunning report. It shows stats like 40% of churchgoers don't think Jesus is God, etc. Other astonishing facts So when we see these statistics showing the state of theology in the Church of America, it's little wonder that so many have not grasped or have not been taught the biblical principles of giving. Again, this cannot be laid simply at the feet of the people. This is a failure of the pulpit to teach the people. No one likes to talk about money, especially in church. It seems unsavory somehow, thinks it will turn off the visitors or the lost. Oh, beloved, Scripture speaks extensively on issues of money and giving. We don't shy away from it. Flocks are being deprived en masse of the joy of giving and the blessing that comes with obedience to God's design. There is not sufficient meat in God's storehouse for the work to be done. Those are the facts. Now, I rarely, if ever, tell personal stories from the pulpit. This is usually not the place for that. But here it seems appropriate to personally give testimony and to testify to the faithfulness of God in matters of giving. As a family, we married very young. Dawn was a full-time mom, and I worked as hard as I could where I could. And even so, we were quite poor. Having three children by this time, I made around $1,000 a month with five mouths to feed. We didn't have a fridge. We couldn't afford one. We had a cooler with ice. We didn't have a heat source in our home. This is Buffalo, New York. Very cold. The children would take turns sitting in front of a portable heater during the winter with blankets wrapped around them. We would go to the Catholic Charities Food Kitchen... We'd bring home the leftover bread donations. We lived in what most would consider poverty by U.S. standards. But we loved the Lord. And we loved His Word. And we had been taught faithfully that giving was a part of our walk with Christ. And we observed in Scripture that the biggest givers to Paul in his ministry were very often the poorest churches. That always stuck with us. There were a hundred places we could have used that money, being so poor. But we gave 10% of my pay without fail. That wasn't a legalistic number. It was a settled conviction in both our hearts. That is what we had purposed in our hearts to give, not under compulsion or legalism, but with great joy and out of a desire to be obedient. Beloved, I can testify that God was faithful in that time. We never went without. And how does God do that? What does he use? Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes. Very famously in Luke 6, notice who God uses. Given it shall be given unto you, Jesus said. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's not a prosperity preacher, that's Jesus Given to us by whom? Men. Meaning God will use your work, your job, the charity and help of others. Once again, God uses people to accomplish his will. To stand by his word. Give and it will be given to you. And it's going to come through men. For us, it was a meal from a family at church when our cupboard was bare. Groceries dropped off at our doorstep. Don will tell you. God always provided for us. Saints, the wallet is often the final frontier in the life of the Christian. It goes right to the issues of the heart. You know, we lived in Houston for a few years as well, and that city was famously named for Sam Houston. Sam Houston was a a statesman, he was a former soldier, he was a politician, he was a very well-off man. In 1854, Sam Houston came to faith in Christ, and he was baptized. And after that event, he pledged then and there to pay for half of the needs of his local church. When someone asked him, why would you do that? He replied, quote, my pocketbook was baptized too, close quote. The outflow of the regenerated heart, having been taught and led by scriptures to give, generously and joyfully, where doctrine and theology are strong, the coffers of that institution should suffer no lack. To be a man or a woman of the word, to be one who lives in awe and in worship and wonder at the incredible gift that they have received in salvation, scripture paints that person as lavish in their giving. A life poured out for the glory of his name. There's so much more that can be said about the great adventure that we have had in obedient giving as a family. But beloved, I pray it become a legacy for all at Harrison Hills as well. Amen? Amen. Oh, that's a good amen. I appreciate that. Well, last week we took a blessed breather, did we not, from our journey through Mark to bask In the beauty of the Psalter, looking to Psalm 130, we beheld what we titled the Ascent of the Forgiven. I have to tell you that so many reached out this week to say what an impact this text had on their walk with Christ. Seeing that with the psalmist not only the pattern by which God saves his people, but the continual cycle of growth that it produces in the believer as they continue their ascent and their growth and sanctification. It was a wonderful time. If you happen to have missed last week, I want to encourage you, heartily, go back to Sermon Audio or Facebook to listen to that. You will be blessed. Well, this morning, as we dive headlong back into Mark this morning, well, we come upon somewhat of a linchpin of Scripture. And, of course, the closer we get to Calvary, every word, every action, every movement takes on a momentous air. The stakes driving even higher as we plunge deeper into Passion Week. Over the next month or so, we're going to be looking at not only the taking of the Passover meal by Jesus and his disciples on the night he was betrayed, but we will behold the institution and the declaration of a new covenant in establishing the second of the two ordinances of the New Testament church. The first, of course, being baptism. The second, that of the taking of the Lord's Supper. The significance of this act and event carry far more meaning than perhaps we appreciate. While much more will be taught on that in the coming weeks as we dig in, beloved, the beautiful scene of the upper room, as famous a scene as there ever was, well, it conjures in the heart a roller coaster, a cacophony of competing emotions as we simultaneously behold the beauty of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John during this time, to his disciples in that upper room, only to know that there's a devil right there in the mix, mix of it, having his feet washed by the master, that we have the beauty of the high priestly prayer contrasted with the most evil act being plotted at the same time. It is a roller coaster of emotion. At the upper room, the Last Supper is an explosion of extremes and contrast, such gentleness and such wickedness, dining together and it is well that it is so that the contrast is so great because no less than the old covenant was passing away and a new was being inaugurated our scene in the upper room our events leading up to it are carried or in whole or in part in all four of the gospels that tells you something want make sure that we get it we see it in Matthew 26 Mark 14 Luke 22 and of course, beginning in John 13 as well. Now we will at times through our, through our series through this, rotate the, the four gospel diamond to capture certain elements, but we're going to try and stay with the presentation that Mark gives us as intended. However, I want to encourage each one of you, as we wade into these incredible waters, the gospel of John carries a recording of these events of the incredible teaching and praying that Jesus did in the upper room like no other gospel. It is one of the richest places in all of Scripture. It's positively saturated in beauty and in depth. So as we make our way through Mark's telling in your own reading time, please read John's account beginning in chapter 13 all the way through 18. Again, beloved, read John's account. Beginning at chapter 13 all the way to 18. This is an explosion of teaching. It is a, it's a mirror into so many truths we could never get through it in our allotted time. But please read that on your own. To grasp all that happened in this hallowed and treasured time of Jesus' meal with his disciples. Now, beloved, instead of laying down a a massive foundation concerning the events that are about to unfold, the the doctrine and the theology of the Lord's Supper, we're, we're going to simply take it as it comes. We're going to allow the text to unfold it for us, so as to not overwhelm. Because it is awesome in depth and application. No less than the inauguration of a new covenant, as Jesus declares, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This declaration that the final Passover lamb will usher in a new fulfilled relationship between men and God, a new covenant based on faith in the shed blood of Christ to take away sin, not on animal sacrifices to merely cover sin. That the death of this lamb would be the very fulfillment of the Passover feast. Now, that carries with it implications that must be peeled back like an onion. The glories here, dear ones, are weighty and demanding. So I appreciate your patience as we've eased into that this morning. With that, let us look to our text this morning. Our wonderful text, Mark 14, 12 through 16. Mark 14, 12 through 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we wade into this text of beauty and of treachery. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to see. Lord, with our mind's eye, that you would allow us to be there, that you would allow us to see the faith that was required, the action that was required. Heavenly Father, we have many needs that have come this morning, and I am so grateful, Lord, that we have a Holy Spirit that knows each one of them and is actively working both to do and to work through them for your good will, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend to the word that is preached, your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, let us dive right into our text here. We have so much to see as we start peeling back this onion, looking to verse 12. Verse 12, it reads, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Now pause there for just a moment. Now, we have a few matters of timing here that need to be looking at. Now, recall that the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted the full seven days, right? And the first day of that week is what Jews would call Passover. That's Nisan 1-4, for those keeping track. All right, we did a deeper dive into some of those issues of Passover timing and Jesus' death when we preached the first two verses of Mark 14. We titled that Passover Plot. You can go back and refresh that onto your leisure we harmonize some of the different timing theories that are out there. But here we see the clear words, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Now, the challenge, of course, being that Jesus was himself to be crucified and sacrificed on the day and the time that the lambs were being killed. Here it says it was on this day. Some have even pointed to this as a seeming contradiction in Scripture. Oh, but it's nothing of the sort. In fact, not only is it not a contradiction, but it points to the incredible demonstration of Jesus' perfect life. We know from antiquity, we know from the Jewish Mishnah, we know from the writings of Josephus that the actual celebrating of Passover was accomplished on two different days, depending on where you were from. If you were a northern Jew, a Galilean Jew, you sacrificed and celebrated on Thursday. If you were a southern Jew, a Judean Jew, you would sacrifice and celebrate the following day on a Friday. See, the northern Jews marked Passover from sunrise to sunrise. The southern Jews marked it from sunset to sunset. And both were accepted. Both were legitimate times to celebrate. Both comport with the command in Exodus 12.6, that it be done at twilight. In Hebrew, this talks about the time between two evenings. In our standard time, this would happen somewhere around four in the evening. Either one keeps this command. And we know Jesus was clear all the way back to his baptism that he has come to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning Jesus must, at this point, we read the text today corporately, did we not? He must celebrate Passover. But how do you partake of Passover to fulfill all righteousness when you're the sacrifice? In the ever-wise sovereignty of God, this is how. There are two Passovers, as it were, allowing Jesus to not only observe and celebrate Passover, fulfilling all righteousness, but to also be the Passover lamb as well. To be sacrificed at the very moment in time the Judean Jews were celebrating and sacrificing on a Friday. Saints, we mine these gems of scripture, not for the sake of mere knowledge, but that we might see the foresight and the planning and the incredible intricate fulfillment that would purchase our pardon at Calvary. It builds our trust and our hope in the word we hold in our hands. When the storms hit, and every person in this room is either in a storm or just left a storm or is heading into a storm, You can read that promise, and you know. You know that you know. The anchor holds when we see these beautiful gems in our text. Looking back to it, finding ourselves here. This is early to late morning, likely on Thursday. And the disciples ask a question of the Lord. Last part of verse 12. His disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go? And prepare for you to eat the Passover. The Passover lamb... That would be prepared, eaten, commemorating the deliverance from Egypt some 15 centuries earlier. It was to be, he was to be slain. It was to be slain and roasted on a pomegranate spit. Now, normally, a savory herb would be used in putting the lamb on a spit, but not for Passover. Here it was bitter herbs that were used. This was to remind them of Israel's bitter existence under Pharaoh's oppressive rule. Exodus one fourteen tells us that their Egyptian enslavers, quote, made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And at the table as well would be unleavened bread. Of course, reminding them how they had to flee in haste, giving the bread no time to rise. And then they would prepare the caroset. And this was a paste that was made from apples and pomegranates and, and dates and nuts and grapes and figs. And they would all be ground up and all mashed together to resemble a clay, reminding them of the bricks that they would make in Egypt. And you would dip the unleavened bread in this paste. And of course, there would be wine as well, Or grape juice if you're Baptist. Now still, Jesus' response to a very basic question, well, it's very odd on its face until we understand. Look to Jesus' answer in the following verses, beginning with verse 13. Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples. Now pause there. What's going on here? Why only two? And who were the two? And why those two? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, if we look to Luke's account of this, Luke 22, verse 8, we see that it was two members of Jesus' inner circle, Peter and John, the most trusted, the closest. One who later that day would say, Lord, wash not just my feet, but wash all of me. And another who would lay his head on Jesus' breast in that very upper room. So the intimacy already there as Jesus sends them on this imperative mission To prepare Jesus' last Passover meal. To prepare the lamb. Inaugurating in a new covenant with his blood. And why only two men? Jewish law. Jewish law. Only two were allowed to accompany the lamb to be sacrificed. And oh, I could go into the details of that. But we haven't the time. But only two may accompany. And it shall be Peter and John. And how does Jesus dispatch these two? Last part of verse 13. And he said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, this is taking an odd turn, isn't it? What's our first clue that something very strange is afoot? Who does not carry water in this culture? I'm sorry, ladies. Who would never carry a pitcher of water in this culture? A man. I'm, not, I'm going to give you a sign that you definitely are not going to miss. That is unmistakable, a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now remember, Jerusalem was swollen to almost 3 million people. You can't say, follow the guy in the red tunic. There's 14 guys with a red tunic. It has to be something very, very unusual. And there it is. And what are Peter and John supposed to do? Follow him. Now, can we just stop and ask some questions? First, why not just have it in Bethany? It's only two miles up the road from Jerusalem. You've been staying there for a week now already. Have it with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We know their house is big enough from Mary's anointing account. But not so fast. The Jewish Mishnah Pesachim seven nine states the following. A slaughtered paschal sacrifice, lamb sacrifice, which has been taken out of the walls of Jerusalem or which has become impure must be burned immediately on the 14th of Nisan. No, go there. It has to be in the walls of Jerusalem. So Jesus says, go inside the walls. Go into the city. Find this man and follow him. So strange. Strange. Why did our preparation of the Passover meal just go complete cloak and dagger? What's with the secrecy? Why not say, hey, Peter and John, right? Dinner at Joe's place. Go there. He's waiting for you. It has gone cloak and dagger. Why? Because there is treachery afoot, right? There is betrayal in the air. If Jesus tells his disciples where they're going to take Passover tonight... Judas is right there, and he is taking that information to the high priest. It would be an ambush, but it was not yet time. It was not time. If they took Jesus at the Passover meal, the entire schedule would have been pulled forward by ours, and that is not God's plan. Not only that, but Jesus couldn't even tell the other disciples. Why? Because they would see no need to keep that information from Judas. Nobody suspected him. It had to be kept secret. Give Judas no time to escape and report until the time is set. Until Jesus looks at him and says, Now, go do what you need to do. the upper room, the institution of the Lord's Supper must be accomplished. The Lamb must be prepared. He cannot be betrayed early. Imagine not having John 13 through 18... Some of the most beautiful teaching and words in all of Scripture given in the upper room, showing the very heart of Christ, Judas would have had the master arrested right there as he reclined for Passover. But man is not in charge of this timeline, are they? This is God's timeline. God would bruise his son at the very moment he was to be, Isaiah tells us. And so we're left with quite the spy novel of a scene here. Very cloak and dagger. Imagine Peter and John just told to go into the city. Not where. Now I could tell you it's a big place. Now, they were up in Bethany. That means they would have come down. They would have gone in the eastern gate. There uh, are people everywhere. Just go. Just go. And you will see this man doing something very unmanly and follow him. Then what? Then what? Verses 14 and 15. I'll read them as one. 14 and 15. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. There is so much for our hearts and minds to see here. So wherever this man is carrying water, wherever he walks into, go to the owner and say, hey, Peter and John. With a man named Jesus, right? Kind of a big deal. You've probably heard of him, right? Wondering if you might have something available. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus is referred to as the teacher. No introduction required. And thus this raises the question. Was this prearranged with someone who knew of Jesus? A follower of Christ? Or was this something completely supernatural happening? Answer? I don't know. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. I have an opinion, and I must classify it as such. First off, we need to understand this entire event of Passion Week is supernatural. God being in charge of every facet of the timeline of Jesus' death, both through human means and divine intervention and planning, all are woven together to accomplish the will of the Father. So is it supernatural in that sense? Yes. Now, does it seem best here, with the owner of the house, that Peter and John were, well, like Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Doing some sort of Jedi mind trick on him, right? Like, the master, the teacher, is need of your house. You will give it to him. No. Not likely. It seems best that this man knew Jesus. That's speculation. We don't know what we do know is that Jesus refers to this as my guest room. My guest room. Notice the possessive pronoun. Repeated, my guest room, my disciples. Matthew's account says, my time is near. All is his, prepared by God for him. Because every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, declares the psalmist. We know that the home is large and that the home had two levels. Both of those things tell us that this was a wealthy home. That means that this family presumably resided on the upper city of Jerusalem, near the temple, rather than by the poorer, lower city that was downwind of all Jerusalem's sewage. That alone highlights either pre-arrangement or supernatural divine planning. You have over three million people, and here you have a large, wealthy home on Passover, close to the temple, available. Not a chance. That's prime real estate right now. You would have to be God in the flesh to get that. We will not know how heaven transpired all of this behind the scenes, but we do have magnificent clues. The owner didn't have just an upper room. The owner had one that was furnished and ready. All is in hand. All will be done according to plan. Now, beloved, we don't know who this owner was. We don't know anything more about him. But we know that he was faithful. We know that he was ready when the master called. And while we may not know his name, Jesus knew it. He knew it. If you ever feel anonymous or small in your service of God, if you perform unto the Lord what some might consider the most menial of tasks, that is not how God sees it. And this most beautiful scene, this most intimate time of fellowship in teaching in that upper room required that anonymous owner to be ready, to be furnished and ready, to receive the Lord. Beloved, there's no small task unto the Lord. There's no small act of obedience unto the Lord because there's no small God upon which to lavish it. Just as there's no small sin because there's no small God to sin against. There is no small obedience. There is no small act of faith. Because there is no small God upon which to lavish it. And so it is. Final verse, verse 16. And the disciples went out and came to the city. And found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, saints, this may seem like a a simple relaying of events. But it is positively overflowing with truth and encouragement. Look first. And the disciples went out. Meaning they obeyed. Peter and John had to depart with Jesus' instructions in faith. Even in so odd of a scene. What a strange request and demand from the Lord. But they had relationship they knew the nature and the attributes of the one who asked, the one who commanded. He could be trusted. It will happen this way. They walked with him, beloved. That is why we have spent three years in the gospel of Mark. That we might walk in these footsteps. steps That we might know him. Their obedience to Christ to go was an outflow of their experience of having walked and talked and slept with the master. I know what he's saying is right and true. Grab hold of that disciple of Christ, follower of Christ. Consider what the next 24 hours will be like for Peter and John. Beloved, we're all going to have moments in our life when we will have To know that we know. To know that we know. And what happened when Peter and John obeyed? Back to our text. They found it. Just as he had told them. (laughs) God is as sovereign over your life as he is and was over the plan of the ages. And you will find it just as he told you. The last part of verse 16 Look with me, beloved. And they prepared the Passover. There is such beauty in that statement. There is faithfulness buried in this statement that mustn't be missed. Understand that one cannot simply walk into a room and prepare it for Passover. No. It's not just a matter of buying all the correct ingredients for the various courses. The process for preparing a home. For preparing a room for Passover starts almost a month prior to 14 Nissan before Passover. But what is the feast called? It's called the feast of unleavened bread, right? Of course, you know that leaven is it's an ingredient in bread making, right? It creates those little holes that you see in bread loaves. Leavening agents, they, they permeate the dough and they release gases that cause the entire dough a batch, batch of dough, excuse me, to rise. During Passover, absolutely no leaven was allowed in the home. Not anywhere. And that process of getting any sourdough, any yeast, any leaven, any bread products, anything of that nature, takes weeks. You stop buying it. You stop making it. You sweep out every cupboard. You check every nook and cranny. This is known as the cashering, meaning not a crumb, not one. Why? 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 Yes, it is to remind them of their hurried escape from Egypt with no time for the dough to rise, but it's much, much more than that. Leaven is not even allowed at any meal offerings made to the Lord, Leviticus 2.11. Not just Passover. Why? Leaven is considered a corrupting influence. It's a hidden uncleanness that manipulates pure elements. Like the influence of a lump of leaven on a batch of dough. Spiritual leaven functions as the sin within us that corrupts and that that sours our soul. This yeast of the soul, it moves like an infection. A cleansing must occur. And not merely getting out the big loaves. I'm going to get the big ones out. But purging all the crumbs. Listen, men, get it out. Get it out. Every crumb. Something happened in that home. Before Peter and John ever arrived, that even allowed them to be able to prepare for the Passover. This faithful anonymous owner and his family—they performed what is known as the Cat chametz. It's a final ceremonial search for chametz for leaven, and it's performed by candlelight by the entire family. And just to make sure everyone is searching in earnest, the head of the house will take ten pieces of bread or chametz, and they're hidden throughout the house. And you must find all ten, every nook and cranny. Not a drop of leaven can remain before the lamb that has been prepared can come past the doorway of the home. Do you hear me? And they take a feather and a spoon. And underneath those ten pieces that were hidden, if even a crumb was dropped, they would sweep the crumb with the feather onto the spoon. And they would say this Hebrew blessing, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the removal of comets." And they would then wrap up this spoon and this feather with the last remaining remnant of leaven. And that was to be done the night before. This would be the night before Peter and John arrived. And the following day, the owner and his family, they would remove the spoon and the feather, and they would burn it. They would burn it, saying, All chametz, leaven and leavened bread that is in my possession, which I have not seen, removed or is unknown to me, shall be annulled and considered ownerless like the dust of the earth. And they set it ablaze. And perhaps then they looked up. Oh, look, here comes a friend carrying some water. And there's two people following him. We are prepared. We are ready. We're ready. The home has been cleansed. The lamb who has been prepared may enter. Paul exhorts us this morning, beloved, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are in fact unleavened, cleansing out the leaven. Boy, that probably makes a lot more sense to us now, doesn't it? Cleansing out the leaven. But listen, saints, Paul goes on, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread. Of sincerity and truth. Be holy as I am holy. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth, Christ our Passover, the Lamb prepared. Some who are listening now may come to Christ with bitter herbs, bitter herbs, reminders of hardship. The effects of sin in our past that kept us in bondage. The leaven the leaven that permeated our whole life, infecting every area. The feast has arrived in your hearing. There's good news. There's good news. Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been prepared. He's been slain. And the Father has raised him from the dead. Assuaging the wrath of the Father satisfying the righteous demands of the law. And through Christ, our Passover lamb, we may be brought back into relationship with him. All that would come in repentance and faith this morning, beloved, you may eat it with bitter herbs, but those bitter herbs now become reminders of God's faithfulness. The room has been prepared. All is ready. All is ready. He is gentle and lowly. Come to him. He'll turn no one away. Let's pray. You are the lamb who has been prepared from the foundation of the earth. And we as unworthy recipients partake of that feast this morning, Father. Heavenly Father, this is almost more than we can grasp or handle or or wrap our finite minds around. But we know this. You are faithful. You are good. You have saved us. Lord, even if we bring forward bitter herbs, oh, you remind us of your faithfulness. Lord, we look forward with great earnestness and expectation to the series looking to the inauguration of the new covenant We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would keep each one of these dear saints until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.